Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Judith Bauer for the New Books Network. And I'm Laura Landon. The music you're listening to is from the 1975 Köln concert by Keith Jarrett. It's the Canadian writer Daryl Wetter's all-time favorite piece. He calls it a symphony on a piano improvised by a virtuoso performer. Daryl Wetter is the author of Origins, a recent book of poetry about fossils, dinosaurs, extinction, and sex. Origins begins with the fossil cliffs at Joggins, Nova Scotia, Canada. When Daryl Wetter looks at fossils, he sees captured, a baked impression, braille signatures of prehistoric chants, a vacant eye socket stamped rim, that extinguished basalt stare. Daryl Wetter conducted his research for Origins when he helped write an application to the United Nations Cultural Agency, UNESCO, asking that the Joggins Fossil Cliffs be declared a World Heritage Site. UNESCO granted that designation in 2008. Daryl Wetter published his book of poems four years later. He writes about the 310 million-year-old fossils at Joggins and also about the scientists who ushered in a 19th-century revolution. Scientists such as the geologist Charles Lyell, who influenced another Charles named Darwin, the famous thinker who advanced the theory of evolution. Wetter is an English professor at Université St. Anne in the community of Puente l'Église, Nova Scotia. He's the author of the book of short stories, A Sharp Tooth in the Fur, which the Globe and Mail called one of the best 100 books of 2003. He published his first novel, The Push and the Pull, in 2008. His most recent novel, Keeping Things Whole, was published in 2013. Daryl Wetter divides his time between Puente l'Église, Nova Scotia, and the tiny fishing village of Advocate Harbour, about 58 kilometres from the fossil cliffs at Joggins. That's where we caught up with him in his writing room upstairs in the old blue house on Advocate Harbor's Main Street. Here in my Advocate writing studio, I have the great privilege of looking out at the natural bar harbor of Advocate Harbor. And so it's essentially a natural lagoon. So half the day it's a mud flat and half the day it's a sparkling bay or harbor. And that's what I'm looking at now across some uh, 19th century floors that I restored uh, and then staring out at the bay. And then you see in the distance at the other side of the bay a line of driftwood, a sort of ripped spine of driftwood. And then beyond that, the big churning bay of Fundy. The lights of a fishing boat, the roar of an ATV, a poem by Daryl Wetter. Advocate Harbor, a dark cavity between the treed molars of Capes Chignecto and Dor, a natural bar harbor, wet fortress of pebbled, resilient spits, combs of bleached driftwood shouldered up to smashing fundy, your narrow channel of red mud, your excitable mouth and its trilling blue tongue briefly slack every six hours 
then thickening in voluble play, a bliss-mouthed dog rolling back a salty toy, or a wetter call to prayer, the communal song of water, high tide, the slopping factory whistle in a one-industry town, each day's floating shift arrives on the advancing hour. The lights of a night boat cut the seamless black of cold ocean and colder air, a halogen letter opener slicing through the envelope of the January dark. Ovals of light, birthday cakes carried into the dark rooms of chorused hope set above the secret dinner table greed. Each berth at the wharf has its dangling winch, rusty earrings awaiting the brief tug of the brisk and whiskered crew who dare not speak their gratitude for the solid wharf, its cradle of overpriced cars, the bi-nightly race to flat screens, furnaces, clutter, and hungry mouths. There were really at least four major incentives to write Origins, a book of poems about evolution, energy, and extinction, as they can be, have been, or maybe should be observed at Joggins, Nova Scotia. The first and primary motivation was fossils in general, and then the fossils found at Joggins, Nova Scotia. So fossils share a lot of analogs with poetry. For one, we get that incredible power of compression. So, you know, the the book does mention this line that, you know, something like only one bone in a billion is fossilized. And from that oftentimes say a single bone or maybe a creature or in the lucky case of Joggin, sometimes you're getting a whole ecosystem fossilized. From these fragments, we then extrapolate more. We extrapolate the creature. We extrapolate its environment. And that's so much like poetry where, to just take the most common tool of poetry, metaphor, we're getting a lot of ideas compressed into a few words. Fossils, a poem by Daryl Wetter. The long shot materialized. Less than 0.1% of the living get fossilized, let alone found whole. One bone in a billion. Put scavengers on the first cell of time's slot machine, the frying sun and sweeping wind on another, then the tectonic and marine whims of 300 million years before the Joggins jackpot. Garden even a little. Dip your hands into just eight inches of annual soil, and you'll find new rocks between the seasons, flotsam on the planet's perpetual flow. For decades, Nova Scotia added another variable cell to the slots of chance, political and cultural indifference to the evolutionary milestone, the only record on Earth of aquatic life's migration to land, the crawl toward dinosaurs, chimps, Bach, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Joggins for years just a billboard and a staircase. Billion-kissed fossils pilfered by the bucketful while local school kids colored photocopies of Johnny Appleseed. Even when we're seeing what are so obviously the skeletons of a creature in a fossil, those are not the actual bones. They are compressed material A that's been recorded in compressed material B, which corresponds to miss, now missing compressed material C, bone. And that, to me, again, is just so much like poetry. 
where where your you know Wordsworth's line is emotion recollected in tranquility, and so there's that there's there's the emotion and it's recalled later. Here we have various events, ideas, experiences, etc., recalled later or differently in language. Then additionally, there is the fact that you know when I was working on the um, UNESCO nomination dossier for the Joggins fossil cliffs. Uh, I came across this famous metaphor of Sir Charles Lyles, which he wrote in a letter to his sister from the Joggins Beach. And so Lyle, which the book descri- describes, you know, joins the consensus in, in, in thinking of him as the sort of father or progenitor of modern geology. Lyle, when he, when he was first looking at this 14-kilometer-long fossil cliffs of, of Joggins, he described it to his sister as the most marvelous chapter of the big volume. And so my book really began with a metaphor, like so many books of poetry do, but it wasn't my metaphor, it was Lyle's. But this idea of reading the planet, reading not just the planet, but the, the history of life, that, to me, I sort of stepped into that metaphor of Lyle's. And it reverberated for me for years. I mean, I came across that when working on the UNESCO dossier in, in 2006, 2007, and it would be 2012 before the Book of Poems was published. Another major drive here in the book is evolution itself. And so evolution really, really is one of the concepts where it just keeps growing and growing. The more you understand it, the more there is to understand. And so Joggins, the fossils found at Joggins, Nova Scotia, they do record that key evolutionary milestone where where creatures chose to reproduce on land. And that was the major demarcation or the major gateway into living on land. So in part, we also get sex at the, at the basis of planetary evolution. And that was exciting. But, um, you know, the more I read about evolution, the more I realized, again, how much it applies to poetry. So with um, uh, Sir Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, you know, one of the revolutions, one of the conceptual revolutions of that book was the idea that, you know, it's really genes that are trying to reproduce, not even species or organisms. From Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, our brains have evolved to the point where we are capable of rebelling against our selfish genes. The fact that we can do so is made obvious by our use of contraceptives. Birth Control by Daryl Wetter Birth Control, the two most liberating words in the language, the chemical marriage that ended marriage, the fruit of the species saving the species from going to fruit, the pill, credit card for a sexual shopping spree, or plastic, dial for pleasure, all appetites served, saving the last and most minuscule. I also, you know, in ways had some personal incentives to write the book in that I've been I've been living uh, sometimes part-time, full-time in Advocate Harbor, about 58 kilometers from Joggins, uh, on and off for about 12 years. And so I did have this sort of bubbling inarticulate urge to try to sort of map the place in a writing project, but I didn't yet know what form that project would take. And so then when I met all this history and science and these ideas and, and, you know, a sort of lifetime interest in environmentalism, everything came together at once. 
you know, the one great advantage of a collection of poems, as opposed to, say, my linear novels, is you get this chance for, say, multifaceted portraiture. You get to come at one or a few issues from several different directions. So there are a couple of, you know, little short, well, there are a couple of poems about the fishing life here. You know, one's a very short little pop culture illusion poem. Fundy 2, These Tides, by Daryl Wetter. A red Mustang idles at the wharf, pounding classic rock. Cold gray moneymaker, tireless lapping family breaker, taken airy inch of your sons. I was the hired pen on what is what is known technically as the nomination dossier for the Joggins Fossil Cliffs, uh, you know, which is now essentially the sort of destination name for the Interpretive and Research Center uh, at Joggins that houses their you know globally unique fossil record. So I knew that that the project was building that there was going to be an attempt to see inscription on UNESCO's World Heritage List. And so I committed financial suicide uh, and left a tenure track creative writing teaching job at the University of Windsor and moved to what had been my summer house here in, in Advocate Harbor. And part knowing that this Joggins project was building, and I'd already had a history of environmental activism, I'd already published my my first book, a book of short stories called A Sharp Tooth in the Fur, and, and I have a PhD in English. And I also had a background in journalism, primarily through writing book reviews. So I thought I'd be a good fit for the project. I did get the contract. And then I worked off and on for about a year and a half with the two principal, as they're called in UNESCO speak, preparers of that nomination dossier, including Dr. John Calder. Now, he himself has a book on Joggins. And so uh, John introduced me to a lot, you know, this, just this wealth of material about Joggins. In getting exposed to to the to the scientific history, uh, I I sort of started building my own more private library, and then I expanded that with a lot of reading. And then, blessedly, I had a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada that allowed me to do a lot of direct travel. So. There's a poem about Drumheller, uh, the, the fossils at Drumheller, Alberta. Well, I was able to go to Drumheller. Uh, I mentioned the Burgess Shale, and I went to Field, B.C. Uh, I went to Darwin's house in, in Kent, England. And so there was this great sense of being able to bring these things together. And again, I think that's true to the fossil issue in a couple of ways. One, fossils are, of course, marks. And poetry, you know, you're trying to, it's a series of mark-making enterprises. But then also, uh, there is this really, really manifest and significant history of textuality around the Joggins fossil. So, obviously, first and foremost, the fossil themselves as a kind of text, but then B, all this writing. So, I mentioned Lyle's line, you know, regarding the beach as the most marvelous chapter. Darwin in On the Origin of Species, Darwin refers to the fossil cliffs at Joggins. Then, you know, I did a, I spent a lot of time examining Darwin's notebooks online and so, or, or at museum exhibits, you know, you would see fascinating things like Darwin's reading copy of Lyle's Principles of Geology. You know, Lyle arguably couldn't have written that book without, or it wouldn't have been as powerful without Joggins. And then there's Darwin reading it on the Beagle, and then his the flyleaf, the back of Darwin's copy of 
Lyle is just crowded with notes. And that is also its own kind of evolution, right? We're seeing ideas evolve. Or, you know, you know, one of the most chilling lines in the Darwin archive is seeing him write, uh, you know, that, you know, he wouldn't have thought of evolution without this concept of Maltus. And Maltus was the first person to really introduce the West to the idea of, you know, we have an exponentially growing population and yet a finite food supply. And this can't be good. So you watch that idea sort of impregnate Darwin. And so that's why a lot of the poems are interested in textuality, including Darwin's notebooks and letters, uh, letters of Lyle. Um, you know, the, the book itself opens with a pen and ink drawing that Sir William Logan did at Joggins. And that's available courtesy of uh, Library and Archives Canada. And so there's this constant, atten- you know, there's this sort of parallel writing between the creatures and humans trying to understand them through science, art, letters, etc. Sir Charles Lyle, time artist. 19th century Rothko of rock, founder of modern geology, quietly finding fault lines in Genesis, dating the planet with a pickaxe, not the Bible. Your world split at Sicker Point, Scotland, one stratum of red sandstone riding another of grey slate, flagrantly perpendicular, a giant T, the first unearthed letter in the end of Christian rule. Your curiosity traveled continents, Europe by the ordered tug of rail, then North America wild, Joggins by stagecoach and rough crossing, your letters from the Joggins beach textured with more than fundy salt. I never enjoyed the reading of a marvelous chapter of the big volume more. Joggins, your unruly protagonist, Caliban and a thousand fossils. Darwin read your Principles of Geology by Lamplight on the Beagle, had you deliver his first public paper on evolution, worked daily at Down House in a crowded study with your grim portrait riding the mantle. Your Principles evolved through twelve editions at London's John Murray, publisher of Byron and Arthur Conan Doyle, though you saved your scandal and mystery for the dip and curl of rock. You're listening to Canadian writer Daryl Wetter discussing Origins, his recent book of poetry on the New Books Network. Lyle uh, really, really drove Darwin. And, uh, you know, so Origins also mentions that uh, for every one page uh, of Darwin's notebooks from the Beagle, where Darwin wrote about flora and fauna, he wrote four for geology. And uh, as Bill Bryson says, geology was the science of the 19th century, you know, in just as physics is a science of the 20th century, but the but the public was more crazy for geology in the 19th century than 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 we are we were in the 20th century, and so um, you know various people have described how Lyle was a wonderful scientist, but absolute novocaine to listen to as a public speaker you know he just had no no uh draw as a public speaker and yet he would sell out lecture halls of three thousand people in boston you know so again there was this appetite for geology in the 19th century for a couple of reasons one the west's you know uh reckoning with christ with with religion with christianity but then two also as you know this book is so driven by the fact that 
as the West was looking for coal for industrial purposes, that, you know, the, the quest for coal got us caught up in quests for our own origins. And, you know, the, the, there was also that industrial incentive to examine the same fossils, same sites, same processes, which then helped other people realize, you know, that the planet was, you know, 6 billion years old, not 6,000 years old or, or 5 billion years old, etc. And so uh, Lyle is in ways one of the sort of, he's, you know, the vanguard, he's leading that charge. And it's also interesting, in, you know, as that poem catches, Lyle was, though, slightly more public than Darwin. Darwin was famously uh, secluded, in part due to illness, uh, and so, you know, Darwin asks Lyle to read his theory of evolution at a public meeting at which Darwin is not present. And and again, though, this idea of ideas evolving. So Darwin working daily with a picture of Lyle above his mantle. So that influence is very, very exciting. It is. I, I took a bit of a gamble, I think, with uh, several of the poems in, in Origins in that they are what I call bio poems. You know, we all know biopics. And so here there are poems about... Mary Anning, and she is the she of seashells sold by the seaside, right? This orphaned girl in England who supported her orphaned siblings by crawling the cliffs at Lyme Regis Dorset and with her, you know, with just with her hands and, and small tools, unearthing major, major fossils. Or Sir William Logan, he gets a biopoem, Lyle, Darwin. And I wasn't sure that those would succeed, and, and, uh, but I, I was glad to sort of take the challenge of writing them. Mary Anning, 1799-1847, and some members of the Petticoats and Pickaxe, by Daryl Wetter. English, orphaned at Lyme Regis Dorset, cliffs of yesterday's seas, surrounded by hungry siblings, you're the she of seashells sold by the seaside, your fossils and skeletons, your female science, still ignored. Only some members remembering your finds unrivaled, porpoise-nosed ichthyosaur, part lizard, part fish, unearthed from a cliff by this child, wee fingers, and a three-meter monster. Then the fierce plesiosaur, flashing aquatic predator, not a dinosaur of pleasure, not from a woman, no. Each discovery made first and best by you, little orphan Danning, and her Mesozoic twenty-somethings, leaving home on land, then returning to water again. Evolution, an apartment swap. Your skeletons complete an intractable pterodactyl, the best type specimens, poster fossils, of the best star witnesses in the scientific trial of extinction. Old men shingled with mutton chops claimed some animals just stopped being seen. This parrot's not dead, it's just relocated. You, Darwin and Wallace, saw the beginning looming in the end. I have one poem entitled Publicity Stills, and it posits, um, you know, cave paintings as kind of the, you know, the paintings in the art gallery of global time, but then fossils are, as it says, sculptures of extinction. And again, it is so chilling to to look at these fossils, you know, either representations of them or if you can ever hold a rock and and think not just of a dead creature, but of a, of a vanished species, of an extinct species. And, and you know... We're all caught up in our own 
paradigms and perspectives and and we never want to you know laugh at previous generations for for uh, what was you know the intellectual fat of the time but we do have to remember that extinction for a long time was not a working concept for scientists nor was evolution you know so there were ideas of you know X number of discrete species that lived forever, and if, if if people weren't seeing them well, they must just be somewhere else. This is a big, a new big planet. We're still discovering chunks of it, so they must just be somewhere else. And then eventually, the idea that you know not just uh, the carrier pigeon, but even whole you know species of pigeon, or then a whole genus of birds can can drop off. Uh, that that chilling sense of you know these sort of this ghost weight behind each fossil is really fascinating. And again, though, you know, Joggins, these are not just fossils and not just fossils uh, that mark that uniquely the, the uh, evolutionary shift to life on land, but it's also tied to industrial energy at a place that's, you know, so the Joggins mines provided some of the first coal of the new world. Uh, and it was mined heavily until I think even the early 80s might have been the closing date of the last mine. But of course, these mines are closed. And, and yet coal is still really, really contentious globally. There's a lot of coal in the planet, but it's a you know can pose a significant threat to a lot of life on the planet. So you know, I'm, where we get to these questions about origins of life and its direction through fossils and you know fossil fuels, and then though we have to ask where where evolution will go now, you know, urban evolution, human evolution, social evolution, you know, we're, we're facing I think some very very difficult questions. Publicity Stills, from the book Origins by Daryl Wetter. In the art gallery of global time, cave paintings roam the walls and fossils. Those sculptures of extinction freeze the hushed, airy center. Even dinosaurs were discovered. Until 1800, these poster children for species genocide went unimagined, unnamed. 1841, Dinosauria, Terrible Lizard, the inaccurate name of Terrible Lizard, Sir Richard Owen. For centuries, dinosaurs thundered across no glossy pages, bared no teeth, armor, or tail in science or childhood. Each fossilized dinosaur bone a bright bullet into God. Another of these biopoems concerns Sir William Dawson, who... uh, was the principal of McGill University, and so, and consequently, his career findings uh, enabled what became the Red Path Museum, and so that was one of my field trips as well. And there are a couple of poem, poems that mention the Red Path Museum or or its its findings. But so Dawson, it was a great example of a sort of. You know, if you think of a university president now, they're they're ultra bureaucrats. You know, they they wear handmade shoes and make half a million dollars a year, whereas Dawson, you know, would have had dusty boots and would have been keen to get back at his pickaxe. And a lot of his digging was done here at Joggins. So it's also an interesting idea of he was essentially digging for intellectual treasure or scientific treasure, and it would enable this same career that would give him the funds to come back. You know, early on at one point, you know, some of these explorers were armed with, you know, cases of dynamite and, and 50 pounds of English money, right? And and yet, so, and, and then Dawson also uh, led the finds for these whole sort of fossilized trees that... Um, 
you know, John Calder describes them so well, is that they'd be like, you know, hollowed out drinking straws, but full of life. And there are various geological theories about how the creatures got inside them, but you'd get a tree fossilized with dead creatures inside it. And so, you know, my poem describes them as sort of periscopes to the past or syringes of death. And, you know, you can sort of feel Dawson's excitement at finding them. And, uh, and then, of course, though, even like my bio poems or like biopics, there is sometimes, though, in art, we wind up valorizing the single individual. So just as, you know, Darwin didn't identify the finches, you know, he sent them back to somebody who could. And even Dawson, I think, shipped his fossils off to someone at Harvard. So often these scientists were working collaboratively. And so that's, you know, that's maybe sort of lost on the cutting room floor here. It's it's hard to write a poem about the sort of silent collaborators or all the team. But nonetheless, the idea of uh, Dawson, you know, as they say, digging for intellectual treasure, you know, and just their palpable excitement of these scientists and moving things within Canada and within North American science. So Dawson's finds from Joggins can still be found at the Red Path Museum. You know, there are still old labels, handwritten labels, accrediting finds to Dawson. Or I, I mentioned a bio poem about Mary Anning. So the Natural History Museum in London, England, still has finds by M. Anning. And when you see those labels, even to see them online, that's really thrilling and exciting. Coprolites, a poem by Daryl Wetter. The end of it all. McGill's Red Path Museum, that fossil Wunderkammer, commenced with Dawson's finds from Joggins. Crowded basement bowels, long intestines of cabinets, a millennium per drawer, sometimes more. Flaking toenail-sized specimens float on cotton in patched engagement ring boxes. Then the dark drawer, rolling cylinders of fossilized poo. One inventive researcher sought the bones of a tiny creature, unlikely needles in impossible haystacks, until his morning epiphany. Find the dung of his quarry's predator, and the job's all done. I read from Origins regularly, uh, and sometimes you read in a literary festival, but then sometimes you read in a bar, you know, late at night when people have been drinking. And, and if I'm reading in a bar, that's when you can be a little raunchier. And so when I talk about the Bay of Fundy, at times I might introduce it by saying that in ways, you know, it's kind of, you know, the Bay of Fundy is like a giant crotch. <laughs> it's it's wet and it's powerful. But that, you know, Fundy is another, it's it's sort of recurrent character in the in Origins. And so, you know, when Joggins, Nova Scotia, used to be sort of down closer to the equator, and um, and yet, it, so it's it's cache of fossils. They're now meaning the ferocious fundy tides. So I was really struck throughout, you know, in writing the book, by this strange mixture of creation and destruction. So and also loss, right? So you have famously the highest tides in the world, or what tie is the highest tides in the world, pounding relentlessly at those. Uh, Joggins Fossil Cliffs beaches, while the beaches are sort of coughing out fossils. And yet a lot of those fossils, as they fall from the cliffs, they can be lost into the sea. And it's into a version of the sea out of which the creatures evolved 310 million years ago. So that's a really 
fascinating tension. You know, in terms of knowledge, we we mourn the loss of those fossils, but in you know with with the sea reclaiming these lost creatures, that's kind of fitting as well. And so then also. Again, the Bay of Fundy is power. Like it's just so palpably powerful with its tides and then its attendant winds and waves. And so, again, to think of um, the human relationship to fossil fuels, and now as we may need to investigate renewable energy, uh, you know, to just to be on this coastline and, and around such power is sobering. And you're sort of just always aware of the Bay of Fundy when you live on it. Well, one of the things the Bay of Fundy poem does is it does posit the, the Bay of Fundy as a kind of mouth with New Brunswick, uh, the top jaw in Nova Scotia, its grinding bottom. And and uh, also uh, it mentions some of the theories on the etymology for Bay of Fundy and one of them being the Portuguese Rio Fondo for deep river. If nothing else, that reminds readers how long people have been coming to this region and or or the fact that the Europeans have been coming to the region because the French f- uh, fondue for split or to turn is another you know theory for why this this bay is called the Bay of Fundy. Uh, but I also I do you know the opening line is a busy mouth to many lovers, and so the fact that there you know it has drawn many many people here, uh, you know, and and with some displacement. I mean, the book of poems also mentions you know that the word joggins is uh, a transliteration or transposition of earlier Mi'kmaq words chagogan or chagogans. Uh, but again, you know, the Bay of Fundy is is uh, this sort of there's this sort of insatiable hunger to it. And the idea of tide is a hunger because, you know, it's recurrent. And again, that gets back to Maltus and food production and the exponentially growing human population. And we are going to have to reckon with this sort of cumulative human appetite. Bay of Fundy, a poem by Daryl Wetter. Bay of Fundy, a busy mouth to many lovers. The profound Portuguese Rio Fondo deep river or the throaty French fondue split for the epiglottal, dog-legging cape split, the top job New Brunswick and Nova Scotia its grinding bottom, the bite insatiable, the roar insistent, clapping off the red tonsils of Cape Chignecto and Dor. Chignecto Bay and the Minus Basin, that chicken crossing the bay, diverge like swimmers' legs kicking 115 billion tons of salt water a day, the deepest, wettest French kiss on the planet. If uh, people think about fossils, their knee-jerk association might not be sex. <laughs> but um, uh, as I say, the um, the big uh, evolutionary decision uh, out of which all terrestrial life, including humans, stems was the desire not just for creatures to hang out on land or, or to look for food on land, but when they began reproducing on land, when they began breeding on land, that was the sort of mark of, okay, we live here. And so an early poem in the book posits that as, you know, the, there's this sort of, you know, big changes are manifest in the bedroom. And so that's where uh, we see this desire for home is in ways a desire for sex. And that poem begins with an epigraph from Darwin, Darwin's later notebooks in which he, you know, he argues like evolutionary, in terms of evolutionary theory, we don't know why sex exists, you know, why, why bother? Uh, and yet, um, 
so you have Darwin puzzling over this issue. And then this record, the fossil record at Joggins, is in ways a kind of record of fornication. You're listening to Canadian writer Daryl Wetter discussing Origins, his recent book of poetry on the New Books Network. One of the great artistic opportunities of a book of poems, you know, I think more so than a novel, is this chance to, to visit issues from several angles and, and also to sort of teleport around uh, one central issue or two central issues. And so, you know, when we're talking about evolution, we are in, in ways discussing the idea of a gene pool and and mate selection. And so I've taught at, at four different universities, three of them here in the Maritimes. And so during the writing of Origins, I was teaching first at Dalhousie University, and now uh, I currently teach at Université Saint-Anne. And so, you know, one, as a professor, you're, you're meeting people at this little window, generally the same window in their lives, you know, from late teens into early 20s. And, you know, in, in part, you do see versions of their mating rituals, You're kind of like a field zoologist in that sense. And, and one can get a little worried in thinking about, you know, this sort of, you know, gene pool and, and who is breeding and why and, and including, you know, good old male privilege. And I, you know, I say this as a, as a man, but, you know, in, in witnessing the sort of romantic success of some uh, male characters who are perhaps not so deserving, you know, you do extrapolate after working on all these poems and thinking like, well, millennia into the future, this is what's been rewarded by evolution. And, and uh, are those going to be the people capable of tackling these huge challenges about energy and food uh, distribution? Privileged Young Men Who Hate Creativity by Daryl Wetter Why take the creative process, CRWR 2000, full year, if they despise art, literature, thought, and hard work? Yucksters in dialed baseball caps, with their TSN bright sneakers and cheap pens, twirled over stubby fingers. An aversion to cunnilingus so total, they don't even notice Saturday Night Jen rolling her pelvis up, her ribs, breasts, shoulders, and expectations back. Frat boys and date rapists, hockey fans in designer jeans paid for by distant parents who call their slim and feature-rich cell phones to be grunted at, whined to, milked. As campuses approach the two-to-one ratio of women to men, the Karens and Rachels seek, permit, and enable these replay barbarians and future fathers tugging off his team t-shirt before undoing her own fresh lace. When I came to write a poem about uh, country life, one of the poems about country life here, because Joggins uh, is in rural Nova Scotia, one of the poems about country life is about a country dog, and it's both about country dogs in general, and at the time I'd been living with a country dog. And so I opened that with an allusion to uh, Mark Strand's famous poem, Keeping Things Whole. And this is a poem that English-language poetry lovers absolutely know, and poetry readers know Strand's poem. He was born in um, PEI, Canada. So Strand's poem, uh, Keeping Things Whole, opens, In a field, I am the absence of field. This is always the case. Wherever I am, I am what is missing. When I walk, my body parts the air, and always the air moves in to fill the spaces where my body's being. 
We all have reasons for moving. I move to keep things whole. Well, my poem Country Dog begins, Real estate baron, in a field he is the incarnation of field. His cutting racing figure eights faints and about turns in tall grass, a hockey game against joy. So I thought that was such, and again, we're also again here dealing with the sort of, um, sort of mental self-portrait of a creature or the genetic portrait of a creature, you know. So Strand is right to say a lot of times human life involves a sort of, you know, uh, escape from where you are or, you know, an opposition to where you are. And yet you see a creature like a dog, you know, running in a field and they are 100% in that moment. And so that was an interesting tension as well. And then it's also interesting with a body of work whether it's Darwin's or Lyle's or my own. So I write that poem, thinking of Strand's poem, you know, between 2008, I was working on the book, and it came out in 2012. And then very quickly, I released a novel in 2013. And as I was searching for a title for that novel, I wound up calling that novel Keeping Things Whole. So just like these creatures that swap genetic genes and body parts across different uh, species... Uh, you know, in ways I was, you know, some of the ideas were spilling over into the next project and the next project. Actually, I'm right now working on um, what we call in the biz a shitty first draft of a novel uh, that is that is very intimately concerned with uh, the sort of pending ecological apocalypse or what some people call the next extinction, the sixth big extinction. answer for why I write is, are, or is uh, wisdom, communion, and empathy. You know, wisdom, you know, pound for pound, philosophers get more ideas onto a page than creative writers, than poets and novelists. But I don't remember <laughs> the ideas. Uh, and yet, you know, culturally, we remember phrases of Shakespeare. Um, you know, I remember scenes from novels that I read 20 years ago. And so that you know, in terms of giving a lasting lesson, I think literature is very, very powerful. Communion. I'm, I'm, I live in language and I, I never feel uh, only, only, you know, profound friendship and profound romantic love and profound familial love rivals the, the, the sense of understanding and another different creature than, than what I get through great literature. And so of course, because I'm so indebted as a reader, I want to try to give that back to other readers. I want to provide that same sense of understanding exactly what it's like to be someone slightly or even significantly different than myself. Um, and, and or as I say, you know, that was sort of two answers in one, communion and empathy. But I, I should also say, I mean, however much at work it is, in ways I am kind of like the... Um, you know, the person playing piano or guitar. I mean, I simply absolutely love writing phrases, metaphors, sentences, and paragraphs. Uh, it is my aesthetic outlet. It's where I can balance things. It's where I can, you know, create problems and solve them. It's where I feel most adept. Uh, writing is, it's, it's my version of uh, the sort of uh, achievable challenge, you know, mountaineers, you know, why do you climb the mountain? It's so difficult. Well, you know, it's that sense of, 
of meeting a challenge and, and trying to meet it well and and knowing that the challenge will be different the next time and having the sustained practice. Fog by Daryl Wetter from his recent book of poetry, Origins. Fog. In wet gray we awaken, air smudged, stolen, railings and abandoned tools slipped into a damp nook, pearled and redolent of salt, exhaled, mornings free from the yapping dog of the wind. Your simultaneous float and sink pours water's total volume through air. A gossamer flood up the sides of blue clabbered houses and around red barns you dull to crimson. Your wet fingerprints lick every available edge, slick green maple leaves, spilt fields, Entire spiderwebs jeweled in tender beads, white picket fences dipped in the opalescent morning. You've been listening to the Canadian writer Daryl Wetter discussing Origins, his new book of poems. The readings were by Lori Lynch, Carmen Carter. Laura Landon, Bruce Wark, Judith S. Bauer, Sandy Graham. The program was produced by Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.